Welcome to Apostrophe Cast. This episode, we bring you the magical mind of Adam Mansbach, reading from his new novel, Rage is Back. Mansbach's sleight of hand is invisible whether he is conjuring forth the voice of Dondi, the drug-dealing scion of a high-art graffiti-writing dynasty, or bending time to put him, and us with him, into tomorrow before we can blink an eye. But under these dazzling effects is Mansbach's rhapsodies that stop the show, from the proper way to savor high-grade marijuana to effortlessly skewering the architecture of race and class that constricts his character's will. Please enjoy Adam Mansbach. Call recording on. Hi, this is Adam Mansbach. I am recording this on my friend Josh Bagley's Google Voice account, which is so futuristic that I don't even vaguely understand it. Uh, I'm sitting here in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm supposed to be in Stockholm right now, but there's an enormous cloud of volcanic ash that is preventing me from flying, which is actually good because I'm sick as a fucking dog, as you can probably hear. In any case, I'm going to read a piece from my new book, my new novel, Rage is Back. Uh, This is from the second chapter. The narrator is an 18-year-old kid named Dondi who is the son of two famous graffiti writers. Um, He has recently been expelled from the prestigious prep school he attends, which he refers to only as Whoop-dee-Woo, Ivy League, Weezer Cumming Academy. Uh, He was expelled for selling weed and subsequently kicked out of his mother's apartment, so he's couch surfing. And uh, I think the only other thing you might need to know is that Dondi is biracial. His father father Billy is white and his mother Karen is black. So here we go. It was Saturday afternoon, and I couldn't think of a single person I could bear to kick it with. Tomorrow, I was scheduled to house-sit for Nick Fizz, one of Karen's homeboys from the High School of Art and Design, a real graffiti hotbed back in the early 80s that had funneled a lot of kids right into the short-lived gallery scene. Karen had gotten a trip to London out of her fine arts career and sold one canvas for enough money to cover her inaugural semester at City College. It was a big aerosol portrait of this old-school rapper named Melly Mel, and she'd be the first to tell you that it was hideous and is almost certainly locked away in a storage unit now, regardless of the coked-up price tag. Fizz, meanwhile, was the exception to the rule, a graffiti success story. He'd been smart enough to sidestep the crack epidemic that had turned 40% of New York's writers into dealers and another 40 into fiends in the mid-'80s, had sufficient foresight or small enough cojones to retire from trains before the buffs started decimating the best lines in '86 forcing everybody to crowd onto the J's, M's, B's, and L's like emergency rafts, and then killing the scene entirely, eternally, by 89. Weird that all these so-called hip-hop heads consider 89 the heart of the golden era when it was also the year graffiti died. Anyway, Fizz decided it was graphic design he loved, not vandalism, and started an ad agency. Now he's right back on the trains, all city by virtue of the cheesy banners lining the insides of every car. Saturation bombing at its most annoying, except that instead of some teenager's messy mop tag repeated and repeated and repeated, it's visit the Bronx Zoo or earn your degree at DeVry College. His crib was bright and spacious, decorated with the kind of pink fur tangle flair only a gay Puerto Rican b-boy can pull off. Better yet, Fizz lived on 108th and Broadway, half a block from the best Dominican restaurant in the city, La Rosita 
which I discovered through this older chick from Whoop Dee Woo Ivy League Weezer Cumming Academy, who was my peer mentor when I started there in ninth grade, and who actually took the concept seriously and schooled me on which teachers to avoid like the zombie death plague and which like the common cold, what culinary options the neighborhood afforded, how to restrain myself from smacking the tonsils out of some ignorant rich kid at least twice a day, that sort of thing. She was the only black girl in her class, which is why the administration hooked us up. Although in her case, the struggle was not attending Manhattan's third most prestigious prep school under the auspices of the coveted, what the hell, let's give a clever young colored boy a chance to transcend his race scholarship like me, but being the daughter of Keith Richards' attorney and caked up to her clavicles and yet still presumed a welfare case. She graduated and went on to major in art history at Columbia, and until I reached the age of sexual maturity, the big sister little brother thing endured, and I'd cross town and eat lunch with her sometimes, always at La Rosita. I can't explain why a simple plate of yellow rice and red beans and a side of yuca canajo should be so much better there than, than at the 80 identical joints speckling the city, but it is. So I could hardly wait to get to Fizz's spot and breathe air and eat good and sleep in a bed and jerk off in peace. Fuck it, I thought. Why wait for tomorrow when you can have tomorrow today? I hopped the two express to Dumbo, which is this stupid yuppie acronym meaning down under Manhattan Bridge overpass, like hardy har, we live in a flying elephant, and made my way to this one particular building I'd recently discovered. I'm not going to say exactly where it's located, although I guess you could figure it out by process of elimination if you spent long enough in the neighborhood, which was not a neighborhood at all a few years back, just a wedged-in ghost town of moldering factories and deserted cobblestone alleys. I haven't bothered to find out what the building was before they gutted and condominiumized it. If I was a different type of kid, I'd have visited some dim, windowless city planning office, claimed I was doing a school project, and gone down to the basement and unrolled a set of decomposing blueprints beneath a flickering yellow lamp and had some kind of revelation. Your boy here, I figured out as much as I needed to know and then left it alone. I'm crap at science to begin with, so if there's some monumental discovery about wormholes and the rending of space-time to be made, I'm not going to be the guy who makes it. Nor am I foolish enough to run my mouth and blow my own spot, end up getting my foot run over by Stephen Hawking's wheelchair or some shit. Sorry, I don't mean to be mysterious. The deal is this. If you enter the stairwell of this building at lobby level and walk 14 flights up to the penthouse, which nobody would since there's a very nice elevator tricked out with mirrors and wood paneling and it always seems to be idling right there, doors open no less, you emerge on the 15th floor having traveled exactly 24 hours into the future. And no, smart guy, you can't walk down and go back. That would be hot, obviously. You could make a fortune a la Back to the Future too. It was the first thing I tried. I'm going to say this once and then I promise I won't come back to it, or even address the reader in second person anymore, which I can see getting annoying very quickly, seeing as most people want to leave, lose themselves in stories, not open a book and have a finger pointing at them all the time, unless it's a pop-up book. If you're already frowning and thinking I'm an unreliable narrator or going, oh goody, I love magical realism, then you should cut your losses and go read Tuesdays with Maury or something, before I get to the really wild shit later on. Skepticism is an admirable trait, but so is asking yourself if you're really such a fucking master of the universe that things might not be happening beneath the surface of your world right now without you knowing. Or even in midair when your back's turned. I mean, hell, they didn't discover the duck-billed platypus until 1896, and then everybody thought it was a hoax because mammals aren't supposed to lay eggs, you feel me? I've thought about this a lot, and as far as I can tell, there's very little to be gained by jumping one day forward. It seems like there should be, but really, you're behind. 
You missed work, school. You don't know if the Yankees won. Also, whenever I get my H.G. Wells on, I step into the future with a queasy stomach, spangly vision, a general desire to curl up and die that lasts an hour, maybe two. It didn't happen the first time before I knew what I was doing. So possibly it's not travel sickness, but some psychological aversion to flouting cosmic law, giving physics the finger. The whole thing reminds me of this game I used to play with my boy Cedric in sixth grade, where we'd invent these doofus superheroes, like the Salamanderer, who has the regenerative powers of an amphibian. If you cut off his arm, it grows back weaker and smaller in about six weeks. Or Diner Man, who's totally invincible, but only in diners and spends all his time trying to convince supervillains to grab some pie. Or this dude we never got around to naming, whose power was that he could fly six inches off the ground. We used to convulse on the floor of my bedroom laughing at this stuff. It wasn't until recently that I realized it was like a metaphor for something. The reason I didn't take the elevator up to 15 to begin with is that I figured the stairwell in this yupster breeding tube would be as good a place as any to pinch a bowl out of my customer's bag and get zooted. You can't risk smoking on the streets these days. Not if you're young and brown. Karen's jeans are the dominant ones, at least in my complexion. And especially not with a messenger bag full of $70 eighth ounces of bomb OG Kush in miniature mason jars slung across your chest. Plus, unlike most people my age, I only smoke from glass pipes. To me, blunts are disgusting. You can't even taste the weed. That might be the point if you're smoking bullshit from the local herb gate, but to roll cannabis cup caliber marijuana in some filthy stale Dutch master cigar and then seal it with your own rank slobber is an insult to everybody who took the time to plant, grow, dry, smuggle, and distribute it. I'm also unusual in that I, in that I like to exercise when I'm high. Pretty much only when I'm high, actually. It motivates me or something, I don't know. Fourteen flights sounded like fun. So I blazed, climbed, slammed open the stairwell door all out of breath, and gave a discreet little rappity rap on the door of Penthouse A. People think weed heads are spacey and laid back, but not when they're waiting for their nuggets and worried that the delivery service isn't going to come through, which they seem to be every time, even if I've been providing quality service for a year. So right away it struck me as odd that this guy, his name was Patrick, he was a stockbroker or a financial analyst or a hedge fund manager or something, one of those money jobs where my eyes glaze over as soon as I hear the first syllable out the person's mouth. And unlike most custies, he'd never invited me in to smoke with him, which is why I thought to take preemptive measures would leave me standing in the hallway for so long. I knocked harder. Maybe he was tore up already and I was bringing by the reinforcements. Another few seconds ticked away. And then from deep inside the condo came the irritated bray of a man who's sitting around in his underwear, or worse, and has no designs on being disturbed. What? Who is it? Hey, I called. It's Mike from Organic Produce Delivery. The door swung wide and Patrick faced me, hands pocketed in some raggedy and no doubt hastily donned sweatpants. You kidding me? You guys were supposed to be here yesterday. Now, I'm high as shit here, keep in mind. As a matter of fact, from here on out, assume that unless otherwise specified, I'm probably high as shit, but in a charming, articulate way. Naturally, I assumed Patrick, the square-ass stockbroker, was trading in hyperbole, so I flipped open my cell phone and confirmed that yes, okay, I was running 15 minutes behind, whatever, old Pat's more of a dick than I thought. Sorry, man, I said. Took me forever to catch a train. Standard New Yorker excuse, totally unverifiable. Patrick crossed his arms over his chest. You fucking with me? That right there should have given me pause. 
White people are basically scared of black people, and the only time a stumpy 35-year-old Wall Street Journal-reading spaz like Patrick will act even the slightest bit aggro toward a six-foot mocha teenager is when there's a formal hierarchy in place to back him. He'd have no problem loud-talking a waiter or cursing out the mailroom guy at work, but he won't say shit if he gets jostled on the subway, you know what I mean? The implicit hierarchy that's had his back throughout his life isn't enough. He's got to see it practically in writing. I adjusted the strap of my bag and spread my legs a little. Why, I said. Do people fuck with you a lot, Patrick? He leaned forward without uncrossing his arms and addressed me in the tone and speed of voice a junior high school teacher might use with her thickest student about a week before giving up forever and applying to business school. Buddy, it's Tuesday. I called for a delivery on Monday. Well then, I said, one of us is crazy. I looked at my phone again and fuck me if it wasn't the next day and I wasn't 24 hours and 15 minutes late. I had eight missed calls, too. Three from my boss, five from Karen. Whatever was going on, I wasn't going to recruit Patrick to help me figure it out. Wow, I said, I'm really sorry. I guess my phone is on the fritz. I just got the message an hour ago. I ran a hand over my dome. You still need? Patrick stared a second, then nodded. Yeah, sure. Come in. I sold him his weed, and Patrick flipped the script and offered me a rip from the glass bong he kept on his coffee table. Swear to God, if I ever get to be his age and pot paraphernalia is occupying a place of honor in my living room, just kill me. So lame. I had no desire to get further stoned, but there was a matter of precedent to consider, so I obliged. Ben Franklin or Hitler or somebody once said something to the effect of, if you want a man to like you, don't do him a favor, ask him to do you one. And by the same token, I guess being a deranged, incompetent asshole had endeared me to Patrick. I thanked him, hustled down the stairs, and checked my phone in the lobby. Still Tuesday. I turned around and started trudging back up, holding the cell in front of me like a compass. I'll say it again. Fourteen flights is a lot of stairs. The moment I stepped across the top floor's threshold, my digital display flipped from Tuesday 5.50 p.m. to Wednesday 5.50 p.m., and I threw up on Patrick's doormat. I think I'll stop there and go get some lozenges or something. Uh, this is from Rage's Back, my forthcoming, uh, you know, it's just your, your basic uh, magic realist graffiti revenge novel, I guess. Uh, thanks for having me. This is Adam Mansback, signing off. Peace. Thank you for listening. Please join us next episode.